This is Mandite and the Apprentice Mage, Book One of the Mandite Chronicles, written and narrated by Stu Venable. Chapter 18 Our mounts from Ekoha Smirt were both well rested and fast. The beasts carried us to Dex Majan a few hours before midnight. It was a typical farming village. There was a temple to the gods favored by farmers and a mercantile store, where the locals could buy supplies imported from the city, including plow blades, seed, and sundry wares one couldn't find in a place so remote. Across the flatlands of this northern waste were a dozen humble farmhouses, each nestled among cultivated fields. Both moons were full this night, and the moon's light glistened on the dew-covered leaves of the crops, all low and squat. I called to Dale, who was at the front of our column. "'Dale, we need to slow,' I said. "'Why?' she demanded. "'We'll spook the watchman,' I replied. She slowed, and the rest of us followed suit. There was a watchman on duty in a small shed by the road approaching Dexmajan. He lifted a lantern as we approached." "'Hail, travelers!' he said in a thick northern accent. Since I was from here, I took it upon myself to speak for the group. "'Hail and well-met, watchman of Dexmajan. I be Mandife Birdstaff of Ecoha Smart. My companions and I are on the Duke's business. We seek lodging for the night and food and feed for our mounts, for we have rode hard,' I said, allowing my own northern accent to slip in. "'I didn't know you spoke bumpkin, mage,' Dale whispered. "'You want to sleep in the dirt tonight?' I hissed. "'Quiet, please.' "'Birdstaff, you say?' the old man said. "'Are you kin to Dalright, Birdstaff?' "'I am his youngest son, in fact,' I replied. "'Little Manny!' he exclaimed. "'I haven't seen you since you were a young buck, "'all bragging about going off to maid school.' "'It has been some time,' I replied. "'Manny,' Kidal whispered. "'Manny Birdpizzle.' "'He and Jess stifled a laugh. "'I closed my eyes and tried to ignore them. "'Welcome, then,' the watchman said. "'I'll wake Godfer. "'He'll put you up and tend to your mounts.' "'We followed the watchman to the centre of town, "'where he hammered incessantly on a door until Godfer answered.' He was rather angry when he opened the door, but when he was informed that little Manny Birdstaff was here and all growed up with his fancy friends from the big city, he smiled reluctantly and let us in. Godfrey called three times to the stable boy, who eventually emerged from the stables and led our mounts away. We were led to two rooms. Dale and Jass were put in one, and Kadal, Bozal, Torum, and I were led to the other. I don't know how... Jas and Dale fared, but our room was small, crowded, and smelled of horse, sweat, and road. Before daybreak, Dale made the rounds and woke us. She had already roused the stable boy, and new mounts were saddled and ready to ride. We left Dex Majan before anyone but the stable boy was up. Their reminiscences with Lumani Bardstaff would have to wait for the return trip, if there was one. By now, we could see a faint outline of Cordell Mountain. It was the tallest of the Wall Mountains in this region. The Wall Mountains separated the vast flatlands of Eldamy 
from the rest of the world to the east and south. They extended as far north as anyone dared venture, and ran roughly parallel to the coastline until they reached the southern extent of the duchy, whereupon they made a sharp turn west toward the sea. Cordell Mountain stood high and magnificent on the dawn-drenched horizon. Even from here, its white snowy cap shone brightly. "'We should have brought more winter clothes,' Cadal grumbled. "'Something makes me think we won't be up there for long,' Jess said with ominous prescience. "'We don't have snow where I come from,' Cadal said. "'What's it like?' "'It's cold and wet,' I replied. "'I've never seen snow either,' Jass said. "'Just then Torm slowed his horse and joined us. "'Once we hit nightfall, we'll make camp. "'Then we need to discuss the plan,' he said. "'How can we make plans until we've seen the place up close?' I asked. "'Dale drew up a map. "'From information from her acquaintance,' he said, "'emphasizing the word acquaintance. "'So, she knows even more about this than she's telling us. "'Great,' I said.' "'She's the one who's going to do the necromancer,' Torum said. "'I suspect she knows a lot more.' "'As we rode, I motioned to Torum to lag behind "'so that I could talk with him privately. "'He did so. "'What do you know of our assassin?' I asked him. "'Nothing, except that the old man said she could be trusted,' "'he said with finality. "'That didn't satisfy me. "'You do realize that assassins are apolitical,' I started. "'They work for money. They're mercenaries.' "'I do,' Torm replied. "'But I also know that the Lord Field Marshal said she could be trusted,' again saying the last phrase with the finality of a loyal and disciplined soldier. "'You will forgive me,' I started. "'But I do not hold the Lord Field Marshal's word with such reverence, nor did I hear it myself.' "'I was but a young swain when I joined the guard,' Torm began." The Lord Field Marshal was but a captain then, and in charge of the Duke's guard. He never lied to me. He's never led me astray, Torm said. He smiled at me. The scar across his nose and cheek puckered in a sickening display, but I could tell he was sincere. I hope the word and judgment of the Lord Field Marshal can be trusted, I said. Torm pulled back on the reins of his mount and his horse slowed. I followed suit, watching Jass, Dale, Kidal, and Bozel ride even farther away. "'I will tell you this, mage,' Torum started. "'Lord Field Marshal Bramstone has never told me a single word that proved untrue. He looks upon each man under his command like a son, and if he confided in you, he would feel just such a familial bond.' I barely remembered my father, and except for the male teachers at the Collegium, I never had a father figure within memory. Lord Field Marshal Bramstone had trusted me to create scry walls to block Marwaleth's attempts to eavesdrop, and he had done so without hesitation. The Lord Field Marshal has trusted me with secrets that I do not believe he shared with anyone else, I admitted. That's his way, Torum said. He's a good judge of character. If he trusts you, I trust you, and if he trusts Dale... "'I trust her. So should you,' he said with a level stare. "'Do you think his good judgment of character extends to mercenaries?' I asked. "'I do. We had several companies of southern mercenaries with us during the Orkvite campaign, 
and he told our lieutenants which could be trusted and which could not. And he was never wrong, Torum said. Very well, Torum, I said. I hope his sense of trust holds true. It will, Torum said simply. Once nightfall came, we quickly made camp. We were still eating the calf jerky Jass had dried days before, along with hard bread and dried cracked cheese. Once everyone's hunger was sated, Dale spoke. This is the closest thing I have to a map of the watch cave, she said, producing a parchment from her purse. We all gathered around to get a look. It was a hand-drawn map, and I instantly recognized the writing on it as Xavier's. This is from a friend of a member of your order, I said slyly. Quiet, mage, she snapped. She probably realized that I recognized Xavier's handwriting. There's a trailhead here, she indicated a point on the map. It leads up the mountain with about two dozen switchbacks. Then the staircase starts. Staircase? Bozel asked. Yeah, they're carved into the stone, and it's a long way up, my friend, she glanced at me menacingly. My associate said it took nearly half a day to climb them. They lead to a flat spot near the top of the mountain on the desert side. It was well known that the other side of the Wall Mountains was a vast desert, stretching hundreds, perhaps thousands of miles to the east. That's where the entrance to the cave complex is, she said. Complex? I asked. I thought we were looking for some sort of watchtower. It is, she replied. But it must have been much more once upon a time. She pulled a second drawing from her purse. This time it wasn't made with Xavier's handwriting. The entrance to the complex is on the western edge of the flat. Once you're inside, there are two passages. The one to the right, she traced her finger along the roughly drawn map, leads to a very large cavern. There's an opening in the northeast side of the mountain, but it's not accessible from the paths or the staircase. If you go straight, she again traced the path, it comes to a small chamber with an opening to the east. That's the observation platform. That's where the necromancer will probably be. I began to speak, but Dale cut me off with a serious glare. Your job, she was speaking to Bozel and Torum, is to get me to the entrance on the eastern flat. Mandite? she said, turning to me. I need you to escort me through the entrance and into the observation platform. There will probably be wards and such. Can I come? Jass asked. Dale looked at Jass and then me. Only if your mentor agrees, Dale said sharply. She sees magic far better than I, I said. I think she would be of use. Jass smiled at me. It was the first smile since she met my mother, and it gladdened me. Whatever you say, mage, Dale said. Once the entryway between this passage and the observation deck is cleared, I move in and end the necromancer. Contingencies, Bozel asked. If I fall, you or Torum must do the deed, Dale said simply. What if Mandite falls, Torum asked. Then it's up to Jass to clear the way, I suppose, Dale said. She looked at Jass, as did Torum and Bozel. Jass withered under their gazes. You'll do fine, Jass. Just go slow and be careful, I counseled. What if they both fall? Bozel asked. Jass went wide-eyed. Bozel noticed this and said, I beg your pardon, young apprentice, but in such situations we must consider all contingencies, even the most unpleasant and unlikely. Jass nodded. If that happens, 
We hope there aren't any wards, and we three move in to end this bastard, Dale replied. Hey, what about me? Kadal asked. You're with Bozal and Torum, Dale said. I suspect he'll have at least some undead up there. Someone will need to deal with them. You've already dealt with undead. If he has them in the passageway or the observation platform, you deal with them. Torum and Bozal can back you up. The last time I fought undead, it was tougher than any fight, even with you, Kadal admitted. Kadal, Dale said seriously, I've only met five fighters as well skilled with the blade as you, and four of them were in my order. You'll do fine. Kadal raised his head with pride. Both Bozal and Torum eyed Kadal with appraisal. Our journey had been so hasty that neither twin had sparred with Kadal. They seemed to wonder if they should have tried the Dark Sailor when they had the chance. "'In two nights we shall be at the trailhead,' Torum said as he stood. "'We should get to sleep. I'll wake everyone a few hours before dawn.' We slept, woke, and rode another day. Then we repeated it again. By nightfall we were at the base of Cordell Mountain. I looked up at the improbable height of the mountain, looking for the opening." that was the observation deck, but I could not spy it. I noticed that Dale kept staring at the same spot. We should make camp over by that grove of trees, she said. I agreed. Should Maroleth look down with his ancient enchanted spyglass, he would surely see us, even though we couldn't see him. We made camp behind the trees, and it was quite a relief. Though I could not see the necromancer peering down at us, I could feel his presence, and it sickened me. I was dizzy and nauseated. Jas noted my ailment and helped me to sit down. Did you sense that, Jas? I asked. Yes, she replied. It's like a sickening smell, like that of burning human flesh, but I can't actually smell it. I could see her holding down her dinner, and I rested a hand on hers. You don't have to do this, Jas. I said. We can take care of it. If things go bad, you can send word to the Lord Field Marshal and make your way back to Basil. I've left instructions with him. No, she said with a slight smile. I'll see this through. She looked up through the foliage of the trees to the dappled image of the looming mountain and its snowy white cap. I know my mother won't be there, alive anyway, and I know you didn't want to tell me that she started. But if I can help end the man that killed her, that will be enough. It will have to be, Jas, I said. She nodded grimly. Again, we were awakened before dawn, but this time it was Bozal and Torum making the rounds. We'll leave the mounts here. Don't tie them. If we don't come back, they can go back to being wild horses. I'm sure they remember. Torum said, while scratching the muzzle of his mount. Then he kissed his horse on its wet nose. We left most of our camp intact, since we wouldn't need any of it, and started up the trail. It was steep and treacherous. Several times we had to nearly cling to the mountainside to avoid sections where the trail had collapsed from erosion. We followed the switchbacks, climbing ever higher until the trail led us around the mountain to its east side. For the first time in my days, I saw the sight that was the Sea of Sand, the great desert 
that had separated Eldamy from the rest of the old empire. Ancient books said that the Sea of Sand was once a vast, lush valley of green farmlands, forests, and meadows. But that was no more. According to those ancient texts, this vast valley was ruthlessly burned to ash and stone by some magical or divine calamity. This happened, according to those texts, nearly 10,000 years ago, around the time of the fall of the old empire. Some postulated that this calamity actually caused the fall of the old empire. Others suggested that this calamity cut Eldamy off from the rest of the old empire, for no one could travel the hundreds or thousands of miles across the treacherous desert. Regardless of the historical theories, it was a beautiful and ominous sight. The sea of sand was flat and nearly featureless, but for sand dunes that looked like enormous white and yellow waves. It was no wonder it was called a sea of sand, for it truly was an ocean of white and yellow, and it extended as far as I could see. I could see massive dust clouds just on the edge of my vision, and I imagined that these winds changed and shaped the sand dunes. I noted that the backside of Cordell Mountain and the portions of the other mountains I could see were still black and devoid of vegetation, as if the mountains themselves shielded the Duchy of Eldamy from the terrible calamity that caused that vast desert. "'There used to be nomads there,' Bozel said, huffing and puffing as he climbed the trail. "'Where?' I asked, barely able to speak from a lack of air. He gestured to the vast desert. "'Out there! Tribes of nomads! Torm and I were in a company that repelled the last of them. That was a long time ago,' he said, almost sadly. "'That was our first real fight,' Bozel added. "'Who was that twit that led us?' "'Major Baskill,' Torm said flatly. "'That was him! What a tool!' Bozel exclaimed as he stopped to catch his breath. "'You both survived. He must not have been that much of a tool,' I interjected. The brothers looked at each other, silently deciding who would tell the story. However they decided it, Bozel spoke first. "'Major Baskill had been given orders to repel the nomads. They'd made incursions a ways south of here, raiding small villages along the western side of the mountain range.' Bozel explained. "'Mostly Logan villages,' he added. "'Then Baskell got the bright idea to end the nomad incursions once and for all,' Torm continued. "'We had damn near a regiment of footmen, a thousand men, maybe more. The nomads would send raiding parties of less than a hundred men. It was overkill. "'Once we repelled the raiding parties,' Bozel picked up the narrative— Major Baskill ordered us to give chase, which was stupid, as we didn't have enough water to follow them very far, but we did it, orders and all. The nomad's settlement was only about six or eight miles from the mountains. He ordered us to slaughter them all. We did it, but not a man there was happy to do it, Bozel spat. We started back toward the mountain pass, but we lost the light, so we had to make camp, Bozel continued. Half the men couldn't sleep, nightmares. A few off themselves during the night. They probably couldn't get the slaughter of women and children from their minds. Not that any of us could. 
On the way through the mountain pass, Major Baskill fell off a mountain trail. The fall killed him. Damn shame, Torm said dryly. Yeah, damn shame, Bozel added. Each brother smiled to the other. It seems like a reasonable solution to an ongoing problem, I said. They both scowled at me. It was a tribe of three hundred nomads trying to survive in a desert. Can you blame them for stealing what they needed? Bozel asked. I can imagine a harder life, Torum said. But that's a lousy way to end a troubled life. It certainly is, I began, but... You weren't there, mage, Dale interjected, staring at me dangerously. I said no more on the subject. As the trail circumnavigated the mountain, we finally came upon the staircase. I could tell that the stairs had, in some long-forgotten millennium, been carefully carved from the stone. The remnants of runes and sigils, long rendered unreadable through the erosion of the ages, were visible on the sun, rain, and wind-ravaged stone. I wondered at those fading runes and sigils. Were they part of some long-faded enchantment? Or were they tributes to the gods of the old empire? I took a moment to summon the force of magic to examine them. What magic was left on the runes and sigils was but a faint shadow, but I could see the intention behind their workings. These markings were part of an enchantment, one to slow the erosion of the very stone into which they were carved. Whoever had built this watch cave had intended it to outlast the old empire, and they had done well with this working. While the stones showed erosion, they were still usable, and that was a testament to whoever carved them and whoever enchanted them. I wondered at the magical workings laid upon these stairs. Was there a mage living today who could work an enchantment that would last ten millennia? I certainly couldn't, and I doubted there was a mage alive who could make such a working last a century. I thought of the mysterious mirror that Basma carried from the south, which now sat in my cottage on Lover's Isle, and the enchanted glass orbs that went with it. Those workings were still strong and powerful, and they were likely as old as these stairs. While historical accounts of mages in the old empire were rare and mostly unreadable, like most of the writings of that age, a few stories survived. Those old mages were truly formidable, capable of bending entire armies to their will and laying entire nations asunder. But what happened to our kind? What caused our powers to be tamed? What caused the descendants of those near gods to become ordinary? Was it the patents of magic? Even prior to the conventions of magic of 7420, few records survived of any mages whatsoever. Had they been purged? Did the mundane government of that era leave us neutered and spayed? We began our ascension, which was exhausting. Bozel, Torum, and I had to call for a rest several times. Bozel and Torum had the excuse that they were burdened with corslets and mail— and that they were a decade or more older than I. I had no such excuse. I was simply unaccustomed to such exertion. While I funny Coda Isle was lonely and boring, it was comfortable, and I was paying for that comfort now. At one point, Dale ran ahead. How she could run up those infernal stairs, I did not know. She returned moments later. 
We're approaching the flat. We should let the Lord Field Marshal know we're here, she said, looking at me. I pulled the brass cup from my purse and spoke into it again. Samana, this is Mandite. Are you there? There was nothing but silence. Try again, Dale pressed. I did, several times. All the while, Kadal was loading our pistols. The twins did the same with theirs, as well as their muskets. I ended up trying to reach Samana, or anyone on the other end, a dozen times or more, but we received no answer, no sounds of battle, nothing. I looked to Dale, Bosal, and Torum. What say you? Do we press on? I asked. No point waiting, Torum said. He looked up the rest of the stairs, trying to spot the entrance to the flat Dale had scouted. It didn't sound good last time, Bosal said. Agreed, Dale said. How far up is it? I asked of Dale. Maybe eighty steps, she said. Maybe a few more, but not bad. Give me time to catch my breath, I pleaded. It's hard to wield magic when you're panting. Dale gave me an exasperated glance, but she nodded agreement. She sat down and began sharpening a dagger on a whetstone. It was the same dagger she used to spar with Kadal. We waited a quarter of an hour or less, but I felt rested enough. We climbed the remaining steps. There were ninety-six, by the way, and we reached what Dale had called the flat. It was surrounded by cut rocks, creating a low wall around the flat area. Dale and Bozel took the lead, climbing the last few steps to the flat and bounding over. Then I heard a hissing sound, and Bozel fell back into his brother's arms. There was an arrow protruding from his chest. Torum carefully laid his brother down and began to tend to him. Kadal slowly climbed the last few steps and peeked over the edge of the flat. He ducked back down just as another arrow hissed above his head. Dale is down too, Kadal whispered. Two archers up on the rocks above. Both to the left. About where? I asked Kadal. He moved his hand to two positions, estimating the locations of the two archers. Would be nice to have a bowman right now, I muttered. Kadal pulled a pistol and said, Almost as good. Too loud, I replied. We don't want to alert whoever's inside there. Kadal gave me a shrug, saying, We go to war with what we have, not what we wish we had. Too right we do, Torum said, fury in his voice. His brother, Bozel, was clearly dead. As his lifeless eyes stared out at the unending sky, vacant and unfocused. I stuck my head over the ledge and quickly withdrew. Two arrows flew over my head, but I had time enough to spot the two archers. I muttered the rhyme for the force of fire and summoned the force of bolstering. I imagined in my mind two hair-thin shafts of fire emanating from my forefingers. I rose to stand and pointed a finger at each, unleashing the bolstered fire in shafts no thicker than the silk string we'd earlier used to mark lines on a map. Each hit its target, though one had let loose an arrow, but its aim was off. In that brief moment, I realized the archers were undead, though freshly so. The skin of their faces was pallid, though not yet rotting. I ducked back down and soon heard two loud thumps. Kadal, I hissed. Check to see if it's clear. He did so. 
We're good. Both archers are down, he said. I looked to Torum, who was cradling his dead brother. Torum, I whispered. The mission. We have to go. He looked at me, tears welling in his eyes, but he gave me a resolute nod. He blinked away the tears and stood, unsheathing his sword. Kidal went first, climbing the last few steps in a wary crouch. Torum followed after him. Once Torum gave us the all-clear, Jass and I climbed onto the flat. I saw Kidal checking Dale. She was alive, the arrow having only pierced her left shoulder. There wasn't much blood. "'We should take her back down and get the arrow out. We can cauterize the wound,' Kidal whispered. "'No,' I said. "'We don't have that kind of time. Our foe may have heard the undead fall, or he might have been alerted when they began firing. We have to move quickly.' Torum pulled Dale down off the flat and onto the stairs below. She winced, stifling a cry of pain. She was awake, but her face was beaded with droplets of sweat. She was clearly in enormous pain. She tried to get up, but Kidal pushed her down, whispering something to her. She finally relaxed and nodded. I moved up to the entrance of the watch cave opposite the stairs and reached out while summoning the force of magic. In doing so, I walked past the two undead archers. It turns out my aim was impeccable. Both archers had pinholes in their foreheads, which smoked from my fire spell. I could see the force of undeath emanating from their twice-dead corpses. The tendrils of magic spun into shadows of the force's symbol. I took note of it. Each of their corpses had broken apart on impact. Bits of them still twitched and wriggled. I turned back to the cave entrance. There was a simple alerting ward at the entrance of the cave complex. I summoned the force of lessening and began carefully dismantling the ward. It took me but a few minutes, but Kidal and Torum stood at the entrance on the balls of their feet, bouncing impatiently. I nodded. The two of them moved in quickly but carefully, each man moving with practiced determination. They stopped at the first intersection. Jas stood behind me, her hand resting gently on my back. I looked back, and she peered at Kidal and Torum as they signaled silently to each other. Torum turned to us and motioned us to stay back. Kidal slowly crept down a side passage to the right. On the map, this was the passage that led to the very large chamber. Kidal emerged a few moments later and whispered, All clear there. The passage winded to the left and then to the right, and as we made the last turn we could see daylight emanating from the passageway beyond where laid the observation platform. I could see what looked like an enormous spyglass, perhaps ten or fifteen feet long. Its brass finish had turned dull with age, and it was mounted on a brass pedestal that was somehow fixed to the rock floor. I reached out again, this time at a distance, and summoned the force of magic again. There was nothing there, no ward, no enchantments at all, through the passageway. I could see magical tracings upon the giant spyglass. The threads of the enchantment were ancient and strong, though, without a closer look, I had no idea what they did. Kidal crouched next to me, and I whispered to him, There's nothing there. Now's the time. Kidal nodded gravely. Then he turned to Torum and motioned toward the observation platform. The two charged in. I followed quickly behind them, summoning the forces of air and bolstering. 
While I couldn't burn the necromancer to death, I might be able to blow him off the platform. Gravity would do the rest. The platform was empty. It was a large room, perhaps six feet wide and twenty feet deep. There was a four-foot-high ledge separating the platform from what would be a fatal fall down the mountain. A similar ledge protruded from above, creating a long, circular viewing gap carved into the mountain itself. The four of us stood near the spyglass and looked around. No one was there. We stood for a moment, not believing what we were not seeing. "'Did we pick the wrong place?' I asked. "'Maybe the map is off,' I suggested. "'But what about the archers?' Kidal said. "'Maybe that's a diversion?' I replied. "'Shh! Quiet!' Torum hissed. It was then that I heard the scuffling of dozens, perhaps hundreds, of feet— coming from the passageway behind us, the passageway we had just walked through. If you would like to find out more about my writing, go to stewvenable.com.